The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are uh, continuing our study of this first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians today, and today begins a new section with chapter 4. Excuse me. Most of Paul's letters can be divided into a doctrinal section and then a practical section. Like if you read through Romans, you got 11 chapters of doctrine. Then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Same with Ephesians. You got three chapters of doctrine. You get chapter four and he says, therefore, walk worthy of your calling. Paul does that over and over, but not in this letter to the Thessalonians. In this epistle, rather than beginning with doctrine, He starts with a personal historical section in which he demonstrates his thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. He kind of reviews his ministry and he shows his deep concern for the suffering that they are going through. Paul explains to them what prevented him from returning to Thessalonica in order to encourage the Christians. So he goes through all that and then as we come to chapter 4, Paul moves to a series of exhortations deal with the Christian walk. So it's going to get real practical. Uh, I know people like to deal with eschatology. They like to deal with these subjects that, you know, there are new, but we're just going to talk about holiness for a while and God's calling us to that. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Yeshua that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Finally is the Greek particle loipon. And it's a particle of transition often found toward the end of a letter. And it means for the rest. Not, necess- not necessarily implying that he's ending the letter, but he's marking a transition in subject matter. And he also does that with the word brothers here. This is the Greek word adelphos from alpha, which is a connective particle, and delphos. Anybody know what delphos means? Adelphos, I mean, I think we're kind of familiar with that. It means brother, but adelphos means the womb. Now think about that. We're brothers. We're connected, you know, through the womb. The fact that he calls them brother and indicates that these people have experienced a new birth. We all share the same father. It's basically saying from the womb. We're, we're connected, all right? And Paul often uses this term when he starts a new subject. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Yeshua. Now, Paul uses these present active indicatives to emphasize continuing action. The verb we ask is the Greek word erotao, which is normally used between those who are of equal rank or status. Erotao, in other contexts, means simply we make a request, but if it's connected with an exhortation, the meaning is stronger and it means beseech or entreat. What's interesting here, this is the only word used by Yeshua in his prayers to the Father. We see that in John 14, 16. He says, and I will ask the Father, erotaho. And again, we get that idea of between people of equal ranks or status, all right, using this. So Paul was appealing to them 
as a fellow believer in the Savior. And then he says, I urge you also. Now this is parakleo, and it means to appeal, to exhort, to encourage. <clears throat> it appears in letters where the author strongly is urging the believers to adopt some kind of a conduct. This word is more emphatic, especially with the words, in the Lord Yeshua, attached to it. So I'm encouraging you, in the Lord Yeshua, that as you have received from us, Paul continually does this. He's telling them what he's already told them. He's reminding them. The word received here is paralambano, which is in the aorist active indicative, and it points to a time when Paul was with them personally. He taught them these things. This Greek term has the meaning of received traditional teaching from another. So what Paul wrote in the following verses was really nothing new. He's just, again, going over, reminding them what he already taught them. Remember, he's just there, he was there for a very short time, and yet he seems to have covered all the bases with them, covered all the ground, and they, he, now he's just kind of reviewing some of it. And he says, how you ought to walk. Uh, walk here, peripateo, from peri, which means around, and pateo, which means to walk. It's a present infinitive. Walk is a biblical metaphor for lifestyle. I think we're all familiar with that by now. Christianity was originally called the way, and so you walk <laughs> on the way, and this is what we're to do. It's, it's our lifestyle. It's how we walk. John tells us in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says, says he abides in him. Now, we went through 1 John, so you understand the concept of abiding. It means to walk in intimate fellowship with the Lord. He says whoever says he ought to do this, he ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So, our lifestyle, basically, is to be like Christ. Well, how do we know how Christ walked or lived? Well, the only way we'll know that is by spending time in the Word of God, primarily the Gospels, who lay out Christ's life and ministry. We see that. Paul says this in Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, only as we live in dependence upon the Spirit's power can we walk as Christ walked. We've talked about this before, but I believe when Christ walked on the earth, He didn't function in the power of His deity. But He walked in the power of the Spirit, setting a precedent, setting an example for us. This is how you live the Christian life. You walk by the Spirit. Now, notice the word here, He says, how you ought to walk. Ought comes from the Greek word day, meaning it is necessary, or one must. It refers to an inner necessity or compulsion of duty, according to Art and Gingrich, Greek English lexicon of the New Testament. This is what we're supposed to do. It means we're not free to decide how we want to live as Christians. Man, I wish we could get that. We don't get to choose. We ought to live this way. Because we've been bought with a price, and that price is the blood of Christ. And so we are under obligation to live in a way that glorifies, that pleases God. Now, the Greek text reads this way, Just as you receive from us how it is necessary for you to walk so as to please God. So he wants them to live in a way that pleases God. Now, Paul's already brought this up in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So, basically, the bottom desire for each of us should be to please God by our lives, by the way we talk, by the way we live, by the way we act, 
that it is pleasing to the Lord. See, the, the person outside of Christ, they live to please themselves. And most Christians do that too, but we're not to do that. We're to live to pre- please Christ. Look at John's words again in 2.6, where he says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. So we're to walk as Christ walked. Now notice what he says in John 8.29. And he says, He who sent me is with me. Christ is talking, talking about the Father. He has not left me alone, for I always do those things that are pleasing to him. So if we're going to walk as Christ walked, we're going to live to do things that are pleasing to the Father. Now, how would you like to be able to say that? I always do the things that please him. How strong is your desire to live a life that pleases God? I guess I'd have to ask, what are you willing to sacrifice? What pain are you willing to endure that you would live in a way that's pleasing to God? And we have to understand here, learning to live to please God is a matter of biblical instruction. Okay, In other words, you can't just say, oh, I'm just going to do this because it pleases God. The only way you know what pleases God is if you're spending time in the Bible learning what pleases Him. Because pleasing God in your life is neither natural nor innate. And without the Word of God, there is no way any of us are going to live in a way to please God. So we have to spend time in the Word of God. And as we do that, we learn how He walks. We learn we are to walk in the power of the Spirit. I think when Paul was talking about pleasing God, I kind of wonder if he had Enoch in mind. Because in Genesis 5.22, the Hebrew says, Enoch walked with God. But it's interesting because the Septuagint says, Enoch pleased God. And if you go to Hebrews 11.5, they quote from the Septuagint, and it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So in our text in Thessalonians, Paul really combines both of them. He says, you're to walk in a way that pleases God. And to please God, we have to walk with him in light of the word of God. So that's the calling there. And then Paul says, just as you're doing. I love that. You're doing this stuff. You're already doing it. So just keep on doing it, basically, he says. Now, what's, what's interesting here is this phrase is missing from some Greek manuscripts. All right, so we've got to get in textual, textual criticism here. The early manuscripts have it, the later ones omit it. That implies that it was dropped out either accidentally or dropped out on purpose. Now, we've talked about this before, but the UBS4, which is a textual commentary on the Greek Testament, it rates different texts and how accurate they are. It gives this uh, phrase, just as you're doing, an A rating means they're certain it's there. Okay, And usually when something's in an earlier manuscript and then missing later, they figure someone just dropped it out, forgot to copy it, something like that. So we're just, let's just say this is there, and Paul's just saying, you're already doing it, just keep on doing it. He knew that the believers in Thessalonica were living their lives to please the Lord, and he just encourages them, he says, do it more and more. So he says, he's saying, finally, brothers, in other words, I'm getting to the the part here where I'm going to tell you how you want to live. And he says, I urge you, I beg you in the Lord, that as you receive from us, we already taught you how to do this, how you're supposed to walk, how you're supposed to please God, and you're doing it, I'm just trying to encourage you to just keep doing it more and more. 
Keep going, guys. You're doing a great job, is basically what he's saying. And then in verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Yeshua. Now, the word instructions here is perangalia, which is a rare military word for authoritative commands handed down through the ranks. So this is what Paul gave him. In other words, he didn't give him suggestions. He's telling you, this is what you're supposed to do. To obey God's commands, we first have to know them. Which means, if you're going to walk to please God, you need to be spending time in the Word of God on a regular basis so you can learn what His will is, so you can walk that way. Now, what's interesting about the commandments is that Yeshua took all the commandments and boiled them down to how many? Two. He said, this is a law of the prophets. Do this. Love God, though your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. You say, that's simple, right? Just two commandments. All you got to do, love God and love your neighbor. Isn't that simple? But then you might ask, well, how do I love my neighbor? Well, that's why you need to be in the Word of God to specifically learn how you keep that commandment. How do I love God? Well, the Word of God lays that out. But those are the two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And the Word of God lays out all the ways. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to commit adultery with their wife. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to lie. You're not going to bear false witness. If you love God... You're not going to put other things before him. So Paul is saying that the basis for his appeal, that they please God, is grounded in the teaching and the authority of Christ himself. He says, we gave you, we gave you these instructions through the Lord Yeshua. In other words, Paul's not making this stuff up. These are the commands of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is Gordon Clark in his commentary in 1 Thessalonians, he makes this comment. He says, though it is not the main point of this passage... The verses contribute to the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture. God-given propositions must be true. God-given commands must be right. So he's saying, yeah, this is, this is the inspiration of the Scripture. He's giving you these commands through the authority of the Lord. And then in verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, when it says this is the will of God, There's no definite article before the word will in the Greek, and that highlights that this is one dimension of God's will. When the Bible talks about God's will, it can be referring to one of two things. It can be referring to God's sovereign will, which is His providence, His predetermined plan for everything that happens in the universe. So it's either talking about that, or it's talking about His moral will, which is Revealed in the Bible. It's the commandments of God. This is what God wants you to do. This is His moral will. So let's look at will in two different passages here. Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And then our text in Thessalonians says, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now does the term will mean the same thing in both of these passages? No. Romans 9 uses the term will to speak of God's secret will of decree, His sovereign will. Look at it. For who can resist His will? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. Nobody can resist the will of God. The sovereign will of God is certain, and it's not going to get resisted. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul uses the term will to speak of God's revealed will of precept, His moral will. God's sovereign will is always carried out. His moral will, on the other hand, is not. Let me ask you this. Do believers commit 
sexual immorality? Do, do this, do this, do this, class, yes. Okay, they do. Okay, if, you, if your eyes are open and you're conscious of what's going on in the world around you, yes, they do, but God's moral will is what they're violating. If there was God's sovereign will, they're not going to violate it, okay? If they violate, and if they violate the moral will, then there's consequences, but we'll get into that aspect next week, all right? The term will by itself, though, is ambiguous. We need to determine its meaning from the context. The Ten Commandments are God's perceptive or moral will. They command men, do this, refrain from doing that. They state what ought to be done, but they neither state nor cause what is done. God's sovereign or decretive will, however, causes every event in time. So as we're looking at Scripture, we've got to say, is this God's sovereign will? Is this God's moral will? Let me show you a great description of a disciple, a follower, a committed follower of Christ in Ephesians 6.6. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as a bondservant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. These last eight words sum up God's moral will for all believers. This is what life's all about. We're to be doing the will of God, the moral will of God from the heart. God created us. He's the author of life. And if we're ever going to live life to the fullest, it'll happen as we live out the will of God, the moral will. Now, Our guide for life and conduct is the moral will of God, what we find in the Bible. We don't know what His sovereign will is until tomorrow. Then we know what it was for yesterday, because it happened. Whatever happened, that's the will of God. But we know His moral will, and that's what we have to be concerned with. So we can never blame our disobedience on God's moral will, on His sovereign will. God just sovereignly planned that I didn't obey Him. We can't do that, okay? We're responsible for the moral will of God, and that's all we're responsible for. To do what God says we are to do, to follow the teachings of the Bible. Look at Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. He says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What will is that speaking of? Sovereign or moral? Moral, because moral, you can't know the sovereign will. Okay? So, like I said, you, so understand what the will of the Lord is, and then watch what he says. Here's the will. Do not, be, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be controlled by the Spirit. So God's moral will is that believers be Spirit-controlled. Now, what is it that Paul says is God's will. Well, he says, your sanctification. That's what, okay, this is the will of God. Believers, your sanctification. This is the Greek word hagiosmos, and it means to make holy. It means separation from sin. Our holiness pleases God. God is pleased when we live a life of holiness because He is holy, and He wants us to be like Him. He says that over and over. Yahweh's will for the Thessalonian believers was sanctification. This is His will, I believe, for all believers, even today. So let's talk for a minute about sanctification. First, I want you to understand the traditional view of sanctification. What most Bible teachers, what most scholars would teach today is God's, when we hear the word sanctification, 
what it means. First of all, the traditional view says, well, first of all, you got positional sanctification. This is a state of holiness imputed to the Christian at the moment of conversion to Christ. This is positional. If you're in Christ, you're holy, you're set apart. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth. In other words, the Spirit set you apart, God saved you. All right? So that's positional sanctification. Then we have progressive sanctification. Now, traditionally, this refers to the process in our daily lives by which we're being conformed to the image of Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. It's a process of being made like Christ. But here's what you have to understand. This only happened during the transition period. Okay? And a text that's often used to support this progressive, in other words, you're growing into that image, is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. So the believers are being, at that time, being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So they're being transformed from one glory to another glory. What's that talking about? Well, this is talking about progressive sanctification, but it doesn't refer to us. It's talking about the transition saints who lived between the first and second advent of Christ. They were being transformed from old covenant glory into new covenant glory. The context of this chapter is two covenants. If we back up to chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of condemnation is the old covenant. The ministry of righteousness, which is the new covenant, must far exceed it in glory. So there are only two glories. And they're moving from the one glory to another. They're growing into a temple of God, Peter says. In 1 Peter 2.5, he says, You yourselves like living stones. He's talking about temple. A temple's being built. It's being built with stones. These stones are alive. Okay? Because it's talking about believers are being built as a spiritual house. It's happening at that time. This house is being built to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Christ. So they in the first century were being built for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The church is the temple, and the temple was being built during the transition period. So during that transition period, the church was growing into a dwelling place for Yahweh. During the transition period, the Old Covenant was fading away. The book of Hebrews was written around AD 64 to 67, and at that time, the Old Covenant was still in effect, but Hebrews 8.13 says, it was growing old, ready to vanish. Because just a few more years, and the Old Covenant is done, and it's gone. All right. During this transition, the church is growing to maturity. They're being built for a dwelling place of God. During the transition period, the church was growing into the image of Christ. That's speaking about position, not practice. This growth was completed in AD 70 when the Lord returned, consummating the new covenant and moving in to that building. 
All right, so we have positional, the traditional view as positional, then progressive, this is you being, the first century saints being molded into the very image of Christ. All right, and then we have <clears throat> ultimate sanctification. Let me back up to progressive. Okay, <clears throat> let's go. Ultimate sanctification. It's said to be a state of holiness that you will not attain to in this life. This basically is glorification. The, the traditional view is when you die, you're ultimately sanctified. Okay? Makes sense? You're dead. You're, you're right. You're what you, sh- well, you're, you're what you should be. And they will use 1 John 3 too. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him. All right? This is written in the first century. To us, He has already appeared, just like He said He would. In that generation, so we know we are already like him. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says about time in 1037. He says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. Now, the Greek here is very expressive and emphatic. The author uses a word which signifies a little while. And then for further emphasis, he added a particle meaning very. And this he further intensifies by repeating it. Thus, literally rendered, this clause reads like this, For yet a very, very little while, and he that shall come will come. And 2,000 years later, they're interpreting that as meaning soon for us. So it's, you know, can be confusing there, right? Most Christians would say that the Lord has not returned yet. That makes the writer of Hebrews a false prophet. But that's not the only problem, because that also makes... Yeshua, a false prophet, because he said he was going to return in the first century. So if he didn't return, there's a problem. All right, so what about us? What about believers living beyond AD 70? What does sanctification mean to us today? Well, first of all, sanctification is synonymous with being in Christ. We are set apart. We are holy. That is our position in Christ. Okay? We, are, we have been glorified in the sense we are in God's presence now. He dwells with us. But I believe that there should be a practical or experiential aspect of sanctification to us. Okay? I believe that Yahweh has called us to live holy lives. And before we talk about our need to live holy lives, let me say this. I believe that all of the Christian life is a matter of grace. Okay, We're brought into Yahweh's eternal kingdom by grace. We're positionally and practically and experientially sanctified by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We receive strength to live the Christian life by grace. We receive both temporal and eternal blessings by grace. That's why everything we sang about this morning was grace, 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 grace. The entire Christian life is lived by grace. Now, as Christians living under grace, I believe that we are called to be holy. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, is it still the will of God for his people today, beyond AD 70? Does God care less now how we live? Since, well, AD 70's passed, I came back, so I don't care what you do now, believers, or whatever you people are, just live it up. No, his will hasn't changed. He still wants us to be holy because that's who he is. In 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, he says, but as he would has called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. So unless God's not holy anymore, we're still called to be holy. 
He wants us to live holy lives because He wants us to be like Him. In Ephesians 5, 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We've gone over this many times. We are called as believers to imitate God. And then I have to ask, do you know your heritage? And by that I mean the status acquired by a person through their birth. You know, looking into your family lineage, you can say, you have maybe say, I have a great heritage. But I'll tell you what, looking into your spiritual lineage, I can assure you, you have a holy heritage. Peter speaks of the self-description of our Heavenly Father that he places on himself, calling himself holy. And the words of Peter are a reiteration of Yahweh's already proclaimed declaration of himself, found in Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy. He says, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Yahweh, our God, is holy. We hear this in the voice of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, where it says, one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy. Holy is Yahweh of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. The living creatures in Revelation 4 also describe Yahweh as holy in the same threefold manner, signifying an absolute holiness. Yahweh, our God, is holy. So I guess that'd be a good time to say, so what does that even mean? What is, how would you def- define holy? What does it mean that God is holy? It means to be separate. To be holy is to be distinct. It's to be in a class by yourself. R.C. Sproul says this, The primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut or to separate. Perhaps even more accurate would be the phrase, a cut above something. He says, when we find a garment or another piece of merchandise that is outstanding, that has superior excellence, we use the expression that it is a cut above the rest. Now, When the Bible calls God's holy, it means primarily that Yahweh is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that it seems almost totally foreign to us. So to be holy is to be other, it's to be different in a special way. The basic meaning is used when the word holy applied to earthly things. To be holy is to be the opposite of being common or profane. Yahweh is holy and that He's utterly different and distinct from his creation. And his people are also to be distinct and separate from the heathen attitudes and actions which characterize the unbeliever. We're to be separate from them. We're to be different from them. We're to be holy in every aspect of our conduct. And holiness is not compartmentalized into certain religious areas of our life. It's a way of life that affects everything we do. It's a lifestyle rather than a mere conformity to a list of rules. Now, J. Hampton Keithley the third, he writes this talking about our passage in Thessalonians. He says, will here is thelema. That's the Greek word for will. What is willed? It points to the sovereign will and plan of God for all Christians. So my question here, really, does it? It does will in our text refer to God's sovereign will? And again, let me ask you this. Is the believer's sanctification God's sovereign will? If it was, it would be so. We would be sanctified. We would live sanctified lives because God gets what He wills, all right? If we're talking about our positional sanctification here, though, the answer is yes. That's God's sovereign will. That's why we are. But in this context, Paul directly defines sanctification in 4.3 by commanding the Thessalonians to avoid sexual immorality. That's what he means by sanctification. So, 
Is it God's sovereign will that believers abstain from sexual immorality? Well, no, it can't be. Why? Because Christians do it, right? God's sovereign will always happens. Here, clearly, God's moral will of command is in view. And we'll see that as we get into verses 4 through 6. There's a lot of commands there. And these commands can be rejected. So God's will for the believers at Thessalonica, and I believe for all believers, is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now the word abstain here is the Greek word apeko, and it means to hold back, to keep off, to be distant. In the middle voice, as it's used here, it means to hold yourself from, from a, to avoid. The middle voice draws attention to the subject's personal participation in the action on himself. So in other words, you're involved in this believer, and he's calling believers, you abstain from this, you don't do this. They were to respond to sexual temptation like Joseph did. Remember the story of Joseph? Kathy, can you give me some hot coffee, please? My throat is giving me a little... My glasses, my cup's right there. Thank you. If you read Genesis 39, remember what happens? Joseph gets promoted to the head of the household, Potiphar's house, and uh, his, Potiphar's wife said, this young Hebrew's a good-looking guy, man. And she just keeps propositioning him, trying to have sex with this guy. And... <clears throat> In Genesis 39, verse 12, it says, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. She can't stand it anymore. She got everybody's out of the house. She Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got out of the house. He just says, you, you grab my coat, you can have it. I'm out of here. And he just booked out of the house. This is what's cool here. This is exactly what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Don't play with it. Don't toy with it. Flee from it. <clears throat> Let me just say here, anybody that is involved in pornography is far from fleeing from sexual immorality. They're playing with it, okay? They're toying with it. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing in our society. So the Thessalonians were to abstain from sexual immorality. So what is it? What exactly is sexual immorality? We've got to define this today because our society is so messed up, all right? Well, the Greek word translated here as sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. I want you to know that word, porneia. Okay, it's a very important word, porneia. Word studies find that porneia in the Septuagint had strong associations with harlotry. The term is rooted in a word meaning to sell, okay, and referred originally to prostitutes and prostitutions. Over time, it came to mean the one who visits a prostitute. Then it began to be applied to adultery. So it just keeps advancing as time goes on and includes more and more things. The theological dictionary of the New Testament, often just referred to as Kittle because Kittle was the main author. No, it's not too hot. No such thing. Kittle says this. After the Old Testament, the term came to mean all sorts of sexual perversion or non in non-inspired extra-biblical literature. The term is used of unnatural vice and sodomy. The Testament of Benjamin 9.1 says, now, now I suppose from the words of the righteous Enoch that there will be also evil doings among you, for you will commit fornication with the fornication of Sodom. There is a porneia of Sodom, 
We trust that our readers can understand the implications of the condemnation of homosexuality and perverse sexual relations, a condemnation that would include acts not defined as normal relations. This is in concert with the findings of the rabbis in their debates and discussion. So Kittle is telling us that the rabbis believed, and it just came to be meant, that all unnatural forms of intercourse would be porneia. Now that said, I think it's apparent that in Yeshua's day, sexual activity with a person one is not married to would meet the definition of porneia. A man and a woman who are physically intimate with one another and are having sexual relations would easily fit into the definition and standard of porneia in Yeshua's time. To be physically intimate with someone who is not your spouse, making physical physical contact with another person in a sexual way is porneia. Now, many believers distinguish uh, the biblical concept of adultery as, well, they say, okay, adultery, that's sex by a married person with someone other than their spouse, and porneia is sex between two unmarried people. But it's much broader than that. Porneia actually describes a much larger class of activities than just intercourse between unmarried people. It is, in fact, the root that we get our word porno from. And it covers about the same broad class of behaviors as porno does for us today. So what does the Scripture say about porneia? Well, as a whole, the New Testament uses porneia in at least four different ways. Voluntary sexual intercourse of an unmarried person with someone of the opposite sex. A synonym for adultery... Harlotry or prostitution, and finally, various forms of sexual sin such as homosexuality and bestiality. So, porneia is a broad term to cover any form of sexual sin. I want you to get this here. Porneia is any kind of sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage. Now, I really shouldn't have to put the word heterosexual in there. Okay, but because of our society, they think two men can get married or two women can get married. That is not a marriage. God created marriage. God brought the first couple together, and it was a man and a woman. That's what a marriage is. A marriage is a union between a man and a woman. So any other union is not a marriage. You can call it whatever you want. It's a civil union. Whatever they want to call it, it's not a marriage. But because our society is so messed up, I have to make it very clear here, porneia, any kind of sexual relation, anything sexual, outside of a heterosexual marriage, that's sin. That's porneia. That's what he's talking about here. Whether it be fornication, whether it be adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, bestiality, I mean, do we even mention bestiality? I mean, that's so crazy in our country, but foreign countries, that's not that, that's not that out of the question at all, okay? We've got to understand that, and the way our country's going, who knows what's going to happen here, okay? It's just, you know, a lot of uh, pride parades were going on last month, and if you happen to see any clips of any of them, it's just unbelievable. The sexual debauchery the sickness, you know, that these people, you know, and, and they're proud. 
Okay, I mean, really? You're proud of your sin? That's really sad, and that's what's happening in America. That's the, the terrible thing about this. They're in sin, and they're proud about it. They're not ashamed of it. They're proud of their sin, and they want to flaunt it before everybody. Okay? Clearly, God's will for believers is sexual purity. That's just His will for believers. Sexual purity. And that's... But here's the thing I want you to understand about Thessalonica, okay? He's writing to these new believers in Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was a very, very pagan environment. Sexual looseness was not only practiced openly, it was encouraged. Remember, this is a port city. This is a city on the, a main highway. And so the, all kinds of people are here. This is a, a sexual center with all kinds of perversion going on. The Greek culture and the Roman culture was a culture where porneia was a very common practice. All right, so he's writing to these new believers and he's warning about this. One of the ancient writers, Demosthenes, expressed the general amoral view of sex in the ancient Roman world. He says this, We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. I'm not sure how that differs from the prostitutes, but they got a distinction here. And then we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our home. In other words, the wives were basically to have children and take care of the house. All right, the prostitutes were your, for your pleasure and the mistresses for, for your pleasure, everything else, all right? Here's, here's the sickening, crazy part about this. In that pagan society, in that culture of that time, much of the worship of their gods involved porneia. Think about that. I mean, sexual sin is huge in this country, but I don't know too many. There are devil worshipers who it's part of their worship, okay? Sexual sin, part of their worship here. And that happens in this country. But here, this is these pagans, this is how they worship, okay? They lived in this promiscuous culture where the goddess Aphrodite she was among the most popular deities in Thessalonica and was the symbol of sexual license and she was the patroness of prostitutes. So basically men would go to the temples and commit acts of sexual immorality with one of the priestesses there and what they were doing is worshiping God. This has to be a man-made thing, okay? Only men are perverted enough to say, well, look, I like sexual sin, so let me combine it with worship and... I'll no, I'm not sinning. I'm worshiping God. And the way you got in touch with God was you'd go to the temple and you would have sex with a priest there, a priestess. You know, you'd go and you'd have sex with them and that's considered, that's great, that's worship. And so much of the spiritual rites of the temple were involved in porneia. It was so common. And so Paul's exhorting them, listen, you guys, you need to lead, you need to lead a pure life. You need to lead a sanctified life apart from that kind of stuff. Because that was so common to them. And again, to connect it with worship is just so outlandish. But man, you know. (laughs) Abstain, he says, from sexual immorality. Do you think the church today needs this exhortation? You think? You think they need it just as much as the Thessalonians did? Again, the difference there is there to them it's a form of worship. All right. 
But I would have to say that we live in a world where sexual temptation is more readily accessible to us than any other time in history. Any other time in history. When I was a young man, when I was a teenager, and I wanted to look at pornography, it wasn't easy. Because they wouldn't let me, they only had magazines, they didn't have phones back then. And if I went in the store, they'd say, no, we can't sell that to you. We tried. So we'd either sneak them from our parents, or one of your friends would get it from your parents, so you could look at that kind of stuff, or you didn't get it. Now, all you need is a cell phone. And what kid doesn't have one? You're connected to the internet, you can get anything you want for free on there. You can look at any images you want, you can, and that's why it's just, our society is being bombarded with this. You know how the billion dollar industry of pornography, the movies they make, the things they do, it's just, our country is just overcome with it. It really is. We live in a society that is lowering and lowering the resistance of people continuously by overexposing us to this and laughing at it until we just, you know, they make all these comedies and you have gay people, you have homosexuals, you have trans, and we learn to just, let's laugh, it's funny. You are really hard-pressed today to find a movie, to find a TV show that's not jamming that in your face. That doesn't have a homosexual on it, or doesn't have a transgender, or some kind of thing that they're trying to jam down your throat and say, this is normal, this is us, you got to accept us. And if you don't accept it, you're homophobic. I'm not afraid of homos. I just know it's wrong biblically. It's a sin. You can call it whatever you... You can be proud about your sin if you want, but the Bible says it's a sin. John Stott, Stott argues this. He says, One of the great weaknesses of contemporary evangelical Christianity is our comparative neglect of Christian ethics, both in our teaching and our practice. I agree. And that's why the church today is flooded with immorality. I mean, it's just, if a Christian couple ever makes it to marriage before they have sex, that's amazing. That's out of the ordinary. It just really is. That's the day in which we live. When I was a youth pastor years ago, a mother came to me, my son wants to get married, would you counsel with him? And I'm like, sure, I'll sit down with him. So I, got, I met with this couple, and they're telling me, we really feel it's God's will. These are church kids, they're Christians, and we really feel it's God's will that we get married. And I said, that's great. Let me ask you a question. They said, sure. I said, are you guys having sex? Oh, you should have seen the expressions. Their face turned a color that I thought was very attractive, you know, pretty pink color, you know. So I, I take that as the answering is yes. I said, so you're sitting here telling me it is God's sovereign will. You know his sovereign will that you get married, but you're violating his moral will, which is your sanctification. I'm like, that doesn't work out too well, okay? You can't be violating the moral will of God while you're saying, well, we know what God wants for us. Well, I'll tell you what God wants for you. He wants you to abstain from sexual immorality. So, yeah, that didn't go real well, but that's... I'm not afraid to stir it up. <coughs> look, look <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really convinced of one thing, for, a couple of things. First of all, if you're sitting under biblical, verse-by-verse teaching, you really shouldn't need counseling. I mean, I just believe that. I believe you're being taught the Word of God, and if you're reading the Word of God, you shouldn't need counseling, okay? My second thing is on counseling. I've done a lot of counseling, and I'm convinced that if someone comes for counseling, what they want 
is for someone to agree with what they're doing. And if you don't agree with what they're doing, they'll go to somewhere else, okay? And they'll find someone else. Because there's been many couples that I've counseled for marriage, and I said, nope, you shouldn't get married. I won't marry you. They've gotten married somewhere else. And guess what? Didn't work out too well, okay? Because, I don't know, you know, people just want someone to agree with them. Look what Paul told the Ephesians. Again, he said, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what we're called to do. Imitate God. Mimic Him. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. All right, two statements here. They're parallel to each other. Imitate Yahweh is equal to walking in love. So the entire Christian life can be summed up as a life of imitating Yahweh as beloved children as we walk in love towards God, towards our neighbor. Now, Paul turns from the theme of self-sacrificial love in verse 2 to the very opposite self-indulgent sexual sin in verse 3, and he says this, but sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, the adversive conjunction here, but, puts everything in verse 3 in contrast to verse 2. And what Paul is saying is that sexual sin is a violation of love. Listen to me. You can't truly love another in the biblical sense and practice sex with them outside of marriage. But that's what will happen. Oh, I love you. Okay, good. Then you won't want to have sex with me because that's a violation of Scripture. You can't combine the two. There's no such thing as sexual relations outside of marriage done in love. Done in lust, yes, and we confuse lust and love a lot here. Our culture is very immoral, but we, the church, are called to be different. We're not to imitate the world. It is God's will that believers live a holy life of sexual purity. He says you are to abstain from sexual immorality. Our text in 1 Thessalonians 4 here is a very socially relevant passage of Scripture because it touches on homosexuality. It says that's wrong. It's porneia. Shouldn't be doing that. No question. It touches on pornography. Like I said, there's such a plague of pornography in this country because you can take your phone and go in a closet and no one knows what you're doing and you can look at all this stuff and you think, oh, it's cool. Or you know what? Most web browsers now have what they call a private mode, a block mode, incognito, I think Google calls it, incognito mode. In other words, it won't show up anywhere. So you can go look at pornography and then you just, you know, no one knows you're there, you're right? Well, listen, God knows you're there and it will have an effect on your life. I don't think God ever intended us as believers to go into other people's bedroom and see what those people were doing sexually. But that's what we do. And you know, of course, guys, it's so damaging because you think your wife's going to do this and you think your wife's going to look like this and this is very unreal for the most part. Okay? It's just plain damaging. The Bible talks about transsexuality. That's wrong. It's porneia, bestiality, incense, adultery, premarital, extramarital sex, sexually transmitted disease, abortion, casual sex. All those things are ramifications of porneia. It's damaging. Very damaging. And now our society is trying to lessen it by saying, well, if you get pregnant, just kill it. 
you know, you got, it's your choice. Your choices should be made before you have a baby, before you get pregnant. Because once you get pregnant, it's not your body, it's somebody else's body, okay? Isn't it funny how my body, my choice, all of a sudden came back with the Roe Wade thing? You know, before, with, with vaccinations, my body, my choice was gone. Okay, it's your body, but it's our choice. But now, Roe Wade, now my body, my choice is all of a sudden back on the table. No, it's not your body. It's somebody else's body. And to see these women out there bragging, this woman said, I had 21 abortions, and she's all proud of it. I'm like, you're a whore. Okay? And there's nothing to be attractive about it. It's nothing to be bragging about. It's nothing to be, you know. God has called us to holiness as believers. Now, how do we deal with this? Okay, how do we avoid porneia as a Christian? Well, we're going to discuss that next week. Okay, and we're going to look at, I encourage you, look at the following verses in this text, because there's textual discrepancies here that we're going to get into and find out what exactly does this mean here. But I think there's some very important stuff in the coming verses that deal with how do we deal with this and what is God's will for us? This is practical, people. This doesn't get more practical. It's like I said, sexual sin damages people. I mean mentally, physically, it damages people. It brings destruction to families. It tears families apart. It ruins so much. And it's not what God intended. All right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us, Lord. Father, I pray that the Word of God would be so important to us that we just want to bow Lord, before you and be those who do the will of God from the heart, wanting to honor you by our lives, by, the, by our thought life, Lord, by our, the things we say, the things we do. Father, help us to understand how important it is to live a life of holiness before you, to honor you in every aspect of life. Lord, give us grace that we may live a life of purity before you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Whew, okay. Questions? No, I really can't. That's what, That's what they're saying, and they don't hear it They're not children. I guess not. Yeah, I guess that's one way they... But, I mean, like I said, you know, you if you just watch any of those, and I just several of the news feeds I have, they're showing you, oh, here's what's going on in Pride Week, and they show you some of the things that people are doing. I'm like, this is just vile, disgusting. And there's little children there, you know, watching these parades. And, and I'm like, how, how sad, how sad is this? If that's, you know, that's where we're at. Sad that the parents bring them. Yeah, it's very sad that the parents bring it. But the parents are just trying to be open. You know, we don't, you know, it's just, it's our society. It really is. And, you know, Hollywood promotes it and pushes it like crazy. Our politicians, I think, you know, I think when the truth comes out, you're going to find out our politicians are very involved in sexual trafficking and all kinds of other sick stuff. Because when, when men have money and power, what they want to get is sex. And... Usually they take it from whoever they want because they have the power and they have the money. And it's just really sick. And a lot of sex trafficking has been shut down around this country and around the world in the last couple of years. I mean, they're going at it like crazy to shut this stuff down because it's sickening. So uh, pray that they keep at it and 
you know, we deal with some of this, you know. But some of these people have children just to put into that industry. That's how sick people are. That's not surprising to me at all because, you know, like I said, this is so shoved down your throat. You know, if the parents are letting them watch TV or if, the par- if they have a phone, are the parents monitoring what they're looking at, what they're, where they're going, what they're doing? Because anything's open. And if all, you know, and then you've got kids in kindergarten being taught this gender confusion nonsense, you know, kindergarten. It's just sick. The public schools, that's what they're doing. We're teaching your kid about this stuff, you know, nonsense. So, yeah, it's it's gone way too far, and I think people are finally starting to wake up and push back, and it's about time, you know, it really is. You want to save this young, you wonder why this young generation is so confused, so messed up, you know. Gary? I can't remember everything I was going to ask you. Um, one thing is uh, we, between the sovereign will of God, we don't know what his sovereign will is until it's passed. You know, we know what his will was today for yesterday. But even at that, we don't always know the purpose of his will. You know, things happen and we go, why? We know it's God's will, we just don't understand why. Yeah, that's we. There's so much we don't understand, you know. And I mean, that's that's life. You're not going to know why everything happens that happens, you know. All right. One of the questions I got is a good question here. Must Christians be married by the government? What say you? Okay. Well, yeah. If you want benefits from the government, you have to follow their rules. But okay. So let's say. All right, let's say we say, no, you don't have to be married by the government. So then what? Then you just say, I'm married, and we can have sex, right? Right, how do you define marriage? That's, that would, that's what it would boil down to, right? Well, marriage is a covenant. And this is my opinion, because I can't give you chapter and verse here, but because marriage is a covenant and because of God's importance on marriage, I think there should be a ceremony. It doesn't have to be governmental. The government doesn't have to be involved. But I think there has to be a commitment on these people's part to say, we are committing to one another. So down the road, they don't say, well, I never really married you anyway. But, you know, so there's some people, and that's the whole purpose of you going to a wedding, is to, you're supposed to be listening to the promises they make to each other and help them keep those promises. That's the idea. It's not just to get free food, okay? It's to go, <laughs> it's to go and listen to them and say, all right, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to support you. I want to help you fulfill the promises you made today. And when they violate those, you go and say, hey, wait a minute now. You, so, no, the gov- you don't have to have a government marriage. But I, I, think, I think you should, like I said, I think it should be a ceremony. It should be something that involves just more than the two of you. And I think you can, I can back this up from Scripture, okay, because... You know, otherwise you could just say, I'll marry you, will you marry me? Yep, okay, great, we can have sex, and everything's good. And then later down the road, you ah, maybe I don't like you, I'll put you away, I'll go to another girl. No, there's a commitment there, a lifetime commitment, that's what marriage is, all right? And we'll talk next week a little bit about grounds 
there are for divorce, and you just might be surprised. Other questions? Not to um, brag or anything. I certainly have no grounds to do that, but uh, several indicated people comment, why do I still take care of Brenda? I made a promise. Well, that's the thing in our day. We're not too big on, you know, keeping our word, sticking to promises. You know, the scripture says, who will dwell in the house of the Lord? He that swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, you make a promise, you stick with it. doesn't matter if it costs you. doesn't matter if it hurts you. If you made a promise, be a man of your word. Today, people flippantly throw out things and they don't, they don't follow them at all. All right, you got to... Not really a question from Jan, though, in Florida. She says, a lot of problems would be resolved and God would heal our land if sermons like this would be taught in churches. This was church. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. I appreciate that. That's, let me begin. This is the advantage of teaching verse by verse. You don't pick out topics. You deal with what comes along. Okay? And sometimes they're not, like I said, this is not going to, you watch this. This, <laughs> I'll make a prediction. I'm not a prophet. I'm making a prediction, not a prophecy. You watch this on YouTube or Rumble, there'll be hardly any hits on this, okay? If I do a message on eschatology, it will blow up. But you do something like holy living, and I'm not interested in that. That'd be stupid, you know? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Okay, I got a, another question. Thank you, Pastor David. One of the difficult verses for me to place in its proper place and in sync with the gospel of grace is no murder will inherit the kingdom of God. Any help would be much appreciated. I, I think I'll probably get into that next week, okay, talk on those verses, because, you know, the Bible, I mean, people coming out, okay, if you're, a, if you're a sexual, you're involved in sexual sin, you don't get to go to heaven, okay? Well, Paul told the Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you've been washed, but you've been sanctified. You know, so yes, God brings his people out of all kinds of different backgrounds and stuff. And some Christians, you know, they keep on sinning and God deals with that. And we're going to talk about that again next week. There's some interesting verses. I just, again, encourage you to... uh, As far as abstaining from sexual immorality, um, and I know we can't always control our thoughts, but we should attempt to, right? I mean, don't let your mind wander. It's too little to be out by itself. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't control the thoughts that come in your head, but you can choose what you dwell on, okay? And that's the thing. You don't want to dwell on these thoughts. You want to move on, not entertain them. Uh, I got a text from April in Fredericksburg. Thank you for taking a strong stand on sexual purity. It won't make you or me popular, but we honor God. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, if you want to be popular, just fit in with everybody else, you know. We're not definitely not trying to do that because that would be terrible, you know. I mean, it's just what what is popular today is so sad. Okay. 
How far is too far before marriage? Oh man, some of these. How far is too far before marriage? Kissing? All these things are on TV. Oh, okay. I was a youth pastor for years, okay, and dealing with kids and trying to keep them separate. And I got this question all the time. How far is too far? My position at the time for these kids was anything is too far. Okay, because if you're making out today, then the next day you get together, you already made out. So you just go a little step further and you go a step further and you go a step further. So just keep your hands off each other. Okay, keep a distance between you and don't do anything because it's listen, your hormones are raging at that age. And it's just, you know, that's why in Bible times, the girls would be 13 years old when they got married. As soon as they, you know hit their menstrual cycle, boom, they were their marriageability, okay? And they'd get married. And you didn't prolong this like you do now. People aren't getting married now until the 30s and stuff. You know, it's just it's a, just a recipe for disaster. The Bible says it's better to marry than to burn. And that's got nothing to do with going to hell, people, okay? The burn is to burn with passion, with lust. It's better to marry than to go dealing with all that passion and stuff. We'll talk about this next week, but that's one of the purposes of marriage sexual fulfillment okay so i mean i just think anything is too far because like i said whatever you leave off with today you pick up there tomorrow and then you move on and it just progresses until you know and what they want to know is they want to know if kissing is sin holding hands is that sin well when do you, i don't when do you get into the sin area <laughs> okay, that's the that's the start of it. Okay, no, I wouldn't say kissing is sin. I wouldn't say holding hands is sin, but holding anything else is sin. Okay, <laughs> you keep your hands to yourself because then you start getting in the sexual area. But that's then that's my point. If you're kissing now, then the next time you're together, well, we already kiss. So let you know you start there and you, you progress a little further. I mean, I was a teenager once. I do know how this works. Okay, I was an unsaved teenager, and uh, believe me, I know how it works. So it's it's a tough thing. And again, because the kids are living in an environment that's so highly sexual, they're almost expected to this. You know, it used to be if a girl slept with a lot of guys, she was considered a whore. She was considered easy. You, you didn't even want to be around that girl. Now, if a girl's a virgin, they make fun of them. You know, oh, she's a virgin. You know, I'm like... How sick is the culture we live in? They've turned the world upside down. Well, God is pleased with sexual purity, and that's only, the only thing we should care about is pleasing God, not our fellow classmates or anybody else. So, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question, Stephen. So uh, that's my best. And that's, like I said, when I was a youth pastor, that's what I told the kids. And, you know, and I guess while we're on the subject, an important aspect here is girls dress in a halfway decent manner, not showing off everything you got. Okay? That's a problem. And dads, that's our responsibility to train these girls how men think. Because most women don't have a clue how men think. And that's good for them that they don't, maybe. But but if a guy would educate them and say, guys are sight-oriented, they don't want to... They see that it just arouses them. Okay? You can look attractive and not be sexual, okay? 
So, but again, that's another problem in our society. I mean, it's, oh my word, it's like bathing suits are like disappearing, okay? They really are disappearing. I'm like, how far do you go until you just, I guess everybody's running around naked, you know? And it doesn't seem to bother people. But I don't think it's God's will for us, people. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be different. It's not easy to be different, okay? It's not easy as a teenager. It's not easy as an adult. It's just not easy to be different. But we're called to sexual purity. And we'll talk next week about the fact that there's problems when you're not following